This is a terrible day to have a lot of announcements, by the way. Okay. But in view of the recent weeks and just turmoil of our country, I feel like I need to say some things about our church. Um, and so I'm just going to do that. And then we'll jump into our text, okay? So here's concerning the state of our country. Here's what I want you to know about Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church. Number one, we pursue every human being, every tongue, tribe, and every nation. You hear me saying that a lot because it's right out of the Bible. Every tongue, tribe, and nation with vigorous gospel pursuit. We believe that we have a greater responsibility to those in our family, those in our neighborhood, those in our town, those in our region, but we believe we are not off the hook for anyone in the world, okay? And I believe that our our missions program shows that, okay? Uh, We've been going to places like Ferguson, Missouri, inner city St. Louis. We were in Ferguson, Missouri five years before anybody at CNN knew where that was, okay? So, So we've been there for over a decade doing inner city work every, every year. So I think I can say that is part of the DNA of our church. Number two, we see every believer, no matter their tongue, tribe, or nation, every believer, as a person redeemed by Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, equal and joint heirs of an inheritance coming for us. We see all others as those apart from Christ in need of our love and gospel pursuit. In other words, what I'm saying is, here's what we are convinced at Lincoln Avenue. There are two types of people in this world. Those joined to Jesus, those not joined to Jesus. There are only two. That is the only two type of people in this world. Joined to Jesus, apart from Jesus. Number three, we are committed to love one another more and more. If you've been through the Thessalonian study, we just covered that a couple weeks ago. In other words, we should never be content in our level of loving and caring for other people. We, and I, here's what I'm saying. We need to do better, okay? And I'm not saying that. Paul said that. So we should always be on the press to love people better. Number four, we are committed to visit and care for the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the poor, the helpless, and the oppressed, and to never show partiality toward the rich or those who we deem can advance our own cause. And again, I'm I'm a big action guy. Uh, I'm, I'm not as big a fan of just talking about things, but I believe if you will look at the everyday function of our church, we prove that with our lives. We prove that with our action. We prove that with our money. Finally, we regard highly the image of God in every man, woman, and child. We remember that when you're dealing with people, we are dealing with image bearers who have dignity because they are created in the image of God. God loves diversity. He has made the church his own body, Christ's body, incredibly diverse in giftings in order to accomplish the mission of Christ in the world. And the great theologian, Forrest Gump's words, that's all I have to say about that, okay? All right, now let's go to the second coming. All right, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we're going to be at. If you would like to stand, I'm going to read verses 13 through 18, okay? Here we go. For we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Father, we pray for great encouragement uh, to come about through the words of this passage. God, I pray that as we, as we think about the death of believers, as we think about the coming of Christ, as we think about the resurrection of the body, Father, I pray that you would give us great encouragement, great hope, great comfort. Father, that, that our today would be transformed by the way that we think about our tomorrow. Father, I, I ask you, God, to just give us the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit. God, give us, give us yourself this morning. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, so this church, uh, the church at Thessalonica, um, it had some problems. Actually, not very many. So if you've been with us through the series in First Thessalonians, you know this is a pretty stellar church. Uh, they really have it together. Paul's really proud of them. They're a joy to the Apostle Paul. But they did have some struggles, and, and that's one of the reasons that he wrote this letter. And one of the struggles that they had was they had some bad teaching concerning the second coming of Jesus. Now, I had, a, I had a, uh, a conversation with John Elam about a 10 years ago in which he tried to make the case that your view on the end times actually affects your everyday view. And when he, when he was making that case, I did what I often do when I, when I visit with John. I just tried to take the contrary, but I said, nah, I don't think so, you know? Uh, since we've had that conversation, almost every day since then, I, I agree with him more and more, okay? In fact, what I've seen is, I've even seen that organizations who have a particularly strong view about the coming of Jesus will actually be fundamentally different in their characteristics, okay? So, for instance, let me give you a, an example that I've seen. An organization that has a strong sense of the imminent return of Jesus Christ, okay? And especially those organizations who have a view that we can hasten, that's a, that's a word right out of Second Peter, that we can hasten the coming of Christ. In other words, that we need to finish and accomplish the mission of God in the world, that we might hasten the coming of Christ. Or Organizations that have that view, they tend to have the following characteristics. They tend to be very flexible in working with other denominations. They tend to be very flexible in the structure of the church, in what doctrines are a big deal. They tend to be more mission-minded. They tend to be more focused on personal evangelism. Now, if you go to the other end of the spectrum, and by the way, the organizations I talk, I'm talking about are all biblical organizations. They just have a bent one way or the other. But, but organizations that focus more, less on that and more on building the kingdom of God, like here on the earth, they tend to have a different set of convictions, okay? They tend to be more doctrinally pure. They tend to focus much more on doctrinal accuracy. They, they tend to focus much more on sanctification among the people of God. They tend to focus much more on impacting their community, on meeting the needs of the poor, on meeting the needs of the marginalized. They tend to be much more engaged in social action, okay? And so, John, I think you were right. I know you missed what you were right about, but and don't tell him, guys. Just you know, leave it at that, okay? So, so it matters. That's what, that's what I'm saying. I, I really think it practically matters how you think about the second coming of Jesus, all right? So in the church here in Thessalonica, they had some wrong ideas about the second coming, and, and it had caused them to do several things. Number one, it had caused some of them to think that they had missed his return. 
So when you look at the second letter uh, that Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 and 2, he says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. I mean, can you imagine how disturbing it would be if I came here this morning, I walked up to the pulpit and I'm crying and I'm like, guys, I just realized we missed it. We missed it. It was Friday and he came and we missed it. That, that would be disturbing, wouldn't it? And so some of them had some kind of twisted view that somehow they had, they had missed Christ's return. You can see that it would upset people. I think that actually went the other way. I, I think there were also some who believed that his return was so imminent. In other words, they were looking at it so, so, so like it's today, it's today, it's gotta be today, it's gotta be this week, that the, I believe some had quit their jobs. I believe that because I can't prove it to you, but in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians, there are passages about you need to work hard. You need to work with your hands. Don't be idle. In 2 Thessalonians chapter um, 3, I believe it is, verse 6 and 7, Paul rebukes the church for people that don't work, that are, that are idle, that are, are, are relying on other people to, to, to support them. Not, not because they, they're in a bad situation, just they're like, hey, I ain't working anymore. I think that was a misunderstanding of the coming of Christ. And then the final one that really we're going to jump off on here is there are those that thought that people who die before Jesus returns are somehow missing out. Like, church, we've done a lot of funerals. We've done We've done four or five this year of, of folks in our church. I think about um, Betty Simmel, who died earlier this year, you know, long time serving a miss. Do, what do we think about her? What, what do we think about her passing before Jesus came back? Do we think somehow she's missing out somehow? It's not gonna, her heaven is not going to be as good? You know, what, what do we think? In other words, what do we think about death? So the Thessalonians were confused about death. They were confused about what happens when someone dies who's a believer. What happens when a believer dies? Where do they go? Where are they? What's going to happen to them? Where, what about their bodies? Will I see them again? And those are important questions. Those, those are questions you ought to think about. I actually think you ought to think about your death regularly. Um, I think that's a healthy thing because there's two realities. Number one, you're going to die. You're going to die. It's coming. It's coming for you. Unless Jesus comes back, you're going to die. And, and then some of you, some of you, you, you don't drink Diet Coke and you don't eat McDonald's like me and you're going to live a long, long time. Praise God for that. Praise God that you're going to live a long, long time. But you know, you know what happens when you live a long, long time? Some, some people can testify to this if you have known families that have this situation. When you live a long, long time, you watch everybody else die. So that's going to happen, right? Like we're all going to die or you're going to, you're going to watch everybody else die before you die. And so we need to be clear about what does it mean for a believer. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to take just a little bit of time and I'd like to walk through what, what I think are the main principles of what happens when you die as a believer, okay? Now, I, I need to make a little disclaimer here. At some point toward the, toward the kind of last quarter of this, there's going to be some of you who have different views of eschatology, okay? And, and in this room, I bet there's a whole bunch of different views of eschatology. And so at some point, some of you are going to be, want to be like, hey, hold on, hold on. I, I think that's going to be longer. I think that's going to be shorter. I think that's going to do, you know, listen, listen, I, I, I do not have time. And okay, I'm just going to be honest. I don't want to. I don't want to spend time on that. Um, I, I think what I'm giving you, I think everybody ought to be in agreement that will happen, even if you think it'll happen in a different order, okay? And by the way, at Lincoln Avenue, we support whatever you think about that, all right? 
So uh, there's lots of different views of the end times, and I, I, don't, I don't know that we need to quibble over that. We can discuss it and talk about it, but I, I don't know that it's really necessary. It's certainly not the point of 1 Thessalonians 4, okay? So here we go. Are you ready? What happens when you die? Number one, your soul separates from your body, all right? Your soul separates from your body. In 2 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul said, uh, let's be of good courage, for we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 8 says, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. All right, so what, what is he saying there? He's saying at death, we are away from our bodies, okay? We are away from our bodies, and we are at home in the Lord. All right, so let's just point number one. When you die, you, okay, you, you know you're more than your finger, right? A lot of you old field guys, you don't have all five anymore on, on each hand, right? But when you lost that one, it, you didn't lose you, right? Like you're still you, like you're still inside here, right? All right, that's your soul. That's the real you, okay? And when you die, okay, your soul leaves. You're separated from your body. Now, number two, the body goes into the grave and corrupts and goes back to dust, all right? That's what happens to the body. We'll get to that in a minute. But, it, but understand this, the body is still important. Let me read you part of the Westminster Catechism. It says this when it gets to the body in the grave. It says, their bodies, I love this part, still united to Christ, do rest in their grave until the resurrection. Okay, isn't that beautiful? So, so in other words, when you become a Christian, all right? So when, when you... When you when you're called by God and your heart is open to see the glory of Jesus and you turn away from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you are united to Jesus, you are united to Jesus, soul, spirit, and body, okay? In other words, God's not leaving anything behind, okay? But for a while, you are separated from your body. Your body goes into the grave, but yet your body's going to be redeemed, okay? In other words, God's not done with that, right? So, you're separated from your body. Your body goes to the grave and crusts back to the dust, okay? Number three, your soul immediately returns to God to be with Christ, okay? So it's separated from your body. Where does it go? It goes to be with Christ, right? Second Corinthians 5, 8. He says, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with who? The Lord, okay? You are at home with the Lord. When Paul is in prison in the book of Philippians and he's trying to, to, to work out whether he's gonna be executed or not, he says in Philippians 1, 23, he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, okay? Not just to depart, but depart and be with Christ. In other words, when, when your soul leaves your body as a believer, you go to be with Christ. He says, that is far better. When Jesus is speaking to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43, he says to the thief, as the thief puts his faith in, in Jesus, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, three very important things there. Today, in other words, this is gonna happen today. When your soul leaves your body, it's gonna be immediate. You're gonna be with me, okay? That's where you're gonna go. He's gonna be with me in paradise. In Revelation chapter six, verses nine through 11, we see that this is a conscious Place. In other words, you don't just go somewhere and take a long, long nap. I, 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 don't, I don't agree with that theology. I don't think, I don't agree that you just nap until the second coming. I think you're conscious. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we see the martyrs speaking from heaven. They're, they're in heaven, and they're, they're aware of what's going on. And they're saying to Jesus, how long, Jesus, how long are you going to tarry? When are you going to come bring justice? When are you going to avenge our blood? And it says, God says, God gives them white robes. 
Moses and said, wait a little while. It's coming, all right? They're conscious. When Moses and Elijah in Matthew 17, when they, when they meet Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, God does not bring corpses there, right? He, they come like it's them. Peter knows it's them. They're speaking with Jesus. Um, the rich man of Lazarus in that story, two men die and one goes to be in Ab- with Abraham in Abraham's bosom in paradise and the other goes to hell and they are conscious. They remember their life. They remember the people back home. They, they, they know what's going to happen. This is a conscious place, all right? A weird one in the Old Testament. Samuel, when the witch at Endor conjures him up and he, and he comes back and he's like, Saul, what are you, what are you bothering me for, you know? And, and he tells Saul he's gonna die. So they're, there's a conscious knowledge of, of, of the world and of, of your future. So when, when you die, your, your soul is separated from your body. Your body goes to the grave. Your soul goes to be with Jesus in a conscious state of bliss. Number four, you're perfected, okay? You're perfected. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, this is a little beautiful nugget here. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23 it says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. I'm telling you, that is sweet, okay? You know, you know why that's so sweet? I am so tired of my sin. I, I know everybody else is tired of everybody else's sin. I, I see that on Facebook all the time, okay? I'm tired of my sin. Like, like for real, I'm tired of being a sinner. I'm tired of having broken affections and a broken mind. I'm tired of having broken desires. I'm tired of having broken relationships. I'm tired of not loving people to the degree that I ought to love them. Man, I'm tired of that. And I long for this, this, when the spirits of the righteous will be perfected. Okay? Next. They will exist in a state of fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore until Christ returns, okay? Psalm 1611, uh, to be with Christ, to be, to be with the presence of God is fullness of joy and pleasure forever until Christ returns. Now, when is Christ returning? Matthew 24, 36, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I do not know, okay? I don't know when he's coming back, and I don't believe that's the purpose of 1 Thessalonians 4, or really Matthew 24, or even the book of Revelation, okay? I think our purpose uh, will not be trying to figure out when he's coming back. I think our purpose is to be comforted and encouraged, and I'm going to give you some application at the end of the sermon of how this should affect us, but I think Christ will return, okay? He's going to return. And look at what verse 14 says. When he returns, guess what? He's going to bring with him the saints who have passed. All right. Verse 14 says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Okay. So Jesus Christ is going to return. So when you die, your body is separated as a believer from your your, your spirit. Uh, Your body goes to the grave, uh, but God's not done with it. Your spirit goes to be with Christ. You are perfected in glory. You go to be with Jesus. You wait until the return of Jesus Christ. And when he returns, he's bringing the saints who have died 
with him, okay? Now, what does that practically mean? That means when Jesus returns, your grandpa, who is a believer and who died, is coming with Christ. Your friend who was killed in a car accident, who was a believer, who was a follower of Jesus, who was a disciple maker, he's coming with Jesus. Winnie Tennant, Kenny Bowers, the Apostle Paul, Betty Simmel, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, Lottie Moon, David Brainer, Mindy Harris, millions of aborted babies are coming with Jesus. See, that's what Paul wants to comfort him. He says, these guys aren't left out. They're not disadvantaged. In fact, when Christ comes, he's going to bring them with him, okay? He's going to bring them with him. They're not going to miss out on anything. Now, how's he going to come? Well, we got several great little images here, okay? He's going to come, first of all, with the sound of a trumpet. I don't think this is like some angel's been waiting. He's got a special music he's prepared for, and he's waiting to play the tune when Jesus comes. I think this is a trumpet of victory. I think this is the picture of an army advancing with Jesus Christ, the general, who's going to slay the nations with the word of his mouth, who's going to bring redemption, who's going to bring rescue, who's going to bring all things to newness. I think that's the sound of the trumpet. He says he's going to come, notice, with a shout of command. That's a beautiful little detail there. Verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, a cry of command. In Genesis, it tells us that when God spoke, he spoke the world into existence. In other words, when God said, let there be light, the voice of God created, it brought into existence. If you were watching my Facebook this week, I, I did a little deal on Mark 5 of Jairus and his daughter. And you remember what Jesus does? He goes into that dead little 12-year-old girl and he takes her hand and he says with his mouth, Talith the coom, little girl arise. And it says she got up and started walking around and she's hungry, ready for breakfast. He brought life into her through his word. When Jesus stands in John 11 at the grave of, of Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, Come forth, and a dead man comes out because of the voice of Jesus. And so as Christ returns, he's going to be a cry of command. And that cry will open up the graves. In John chapter 5, verse 28, this is a beautiful little, little verse in John. And again, I know some of you have a different view of es eschatology, and I am awesome with that. And some of you would say, no, this is not the second coming. It's the third coming. It's the, the one that comes after this. Um, but, but either way, either way, my, my point is this. Verse 28, do not mark marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will what? They'll hear his voice. Isn't that incredible? They'll hear his voice and they'll come out. They'll come out. The voice of Jesus, the cry of command opens the tombs and the dead will be raised. Okay, now what's next? Well, the bodies of the saints who died who are coming with Jesus. Remember, he's bringing them, okay? The bodies of the saints who, who, who come with Jesus are gonna be raised and they're gonna be transformed. Again, you might have a different view of Revelation. This might come later, but either way, it's gonna come, okay? What, what I'm telling you is this is gonna happen, and I think you'll agree with that. It is gonna happen, okay? They're gonna come and they're gonna be transformed, all right? Uh, and notice what he says in verse 16, a little detail here. Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will be raised first. And why does he say first? Because remember, his whole point is, don't worry about these folks that have died. They're, they're not left out in any way. Man, when Christ comes, they're not going to miss it. You know, they're not stuck somewhere and they're going to miss this triumphant return of Jesus Christ when he brings justice. Isn't that going to be awesome? When he, brings, when he finally brings justice to the entire world and there's not one bit of injustice left taken care of. He says, you're not going to miss that. He says, the dead in Christ will be raised first. They're before those who are left. 
okay? And then those who are still alive, they're gonna, this is beautiful, 1 John 3, 2, let me read it. Beloved, we are, God's, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we'll see him. He says we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. We'll see the glorified Jesus and we'll be transformed. Those who are left, right? So that's when the saints will be perfected, transformed. They'll receive a resurrection body, okay? They're caught up is what, is what verse 17 says, caught up. It's a word that means kind of aggressively snatched. I don't know if you guys saw this YouTube video. It's really great. I watched it probably 20 times, but it's, it's, it's in an Asian country. I don't know where it was, but you could tell it, was a, it looked like an Asian country, country to me. And there's this guy sitting with his little toddlers playing. There's a mechanic shop. He's sitting on one of them rolling dolly deals. And there's a car that evidently goes out of control, flies through his shop, like, like coming in 30 mile an hour through his shop. And the, the things bust, everything come. And you can see him grab like lightning reflexes snatches that toddler whew, right out of the way of that car and comes in. That's the rapture, right? That, that's the, whatever you want to call it. Rapture is, a, see, I wasn't going to go into any of those end time stuff, and I said it anyway. Okay, that's the coming of Jesus, all right? Whichever way you want to believe about that. But that, that's it. When he, when he snatches, when he catches them up in the air, okay? And, and we receive resurrection bodies. Is that hopeful to you? I hope it is. First of all, how do you think about the resurrection body? Like, if, if your idea of it is that, you know, you died of uh, liver cancer, you know, or strokes of the liver or lung cancer, and that God, Jesus raises your body, and, like, he brings you back, you know, to about five years before you, you, you know, were sick, you know, and you're still kind of weak, and, you know, you still get winded when you go up a couple flights of stairs, but you're, you're alive, Okay. That's disappointing, all right? Don't, don't think that way about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, here, here's what it says about the resurrection. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 35 says, Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be. It's not the body that is to be. In other words, when you put a wheat kernel in the ground and it dies, what happens? Well, something comes up, right? But it's not a wheat kernel. It, it's, it's a stalk of grain and then a head and then tassels and then uh, an ear full of, right? Like it's something fundamentally more glorious. He said, that's the resurrection. That, that's the beauty of the resurrection. This is not a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some of the grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed. Anyway, he, there's this transformed body. We're going to be like Jesus. That's what 1 John 3, 2 said. Philippians 3 Tells us that we're going to have a body like his. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says uh, our citizenship is in heaven. And from that, from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. That's what we got right now. You got a lowly body. You know why you have a lowly body? Because it hurts and it aches, right? And, and when you do too much, it, it tells you about it. And, and you can't see very good. If you're like me, you cannot see the numbers on the Bible. It doesn't matter how many times you go to the eye doctor and she says, this is as good as it's get. You still can't see them, right? Like, like that's a lowly body, right? He says you're going to be transformed to have a lowly body, to have a body like Jesus. And you're going to need a body like Jesus. Why? Because of the resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. That's a game changer. You're going to need new bodies in order to experience what is coming for you, all right? 
Have you ever thought about the new heavens and the new earth? You're gonna need you're gonna need taste buds. If your idea of heaven is Casper the ghost, you know that that's what you are is this little white fluffy thing floating around spying on people. Okay, I am sorry for that poor theology that you got from Hallmark cards or wherever you got it. Okay, television because that is not the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth are, are a redeemed. And in other words, God fixes, He makes new, He transforms this broken version into this glorious version. He transforms your broken body into his, his glory, an image of his glorious body. And then you live in the new heavens and the new earth forever. And you know what you need there? Some of you are going to really be excited about this. Ed Evans is going to rejoice in this. You're going to need redeemed taste buds, Ed. You are going to need taste. You're going to feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are going to eat in heaven, and there's not any cholesterol, or I, I, don't, I don't actually know the details, but I, I do know we're going to have resurrected bodies, and we're going to eat Jesus ate in his resurrected bodies. You're going to need taste buds. You're going to need corneas, all right? You're going to need new eyes. You know why you're going to need new eyes? Because there's a lot to look at in Revelation 21, verse um, 18, he says the, the wall, he's talking about the city coming down from God. He says the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second was sapphire. Why is he telling us all that? Because you're gonna see it. Then you're gonna see it with resurrected eyes. You're gonna need ears. Why? Because there's gonna be worship. Revelation 5 tells us that there are myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands from every tongue and tribe and nation gathered around the throne singing, worthy is the lamb. And you're gonna sing, Bonnie's gonna appreciate this, you're gonna sing with made new vocal cords, all right, right? That's a good, you know, depending on where you sit in here today, that's good news, right? Is, is there, there's gonna be a redeemed body praising, worthy of God. You're gonna need new feet to run in the mountains of God. You're gonna need a new mind that each day will stretch to comprehend the glorious riches and the joys of Jesus Christ. And so the final step is there's a new earth and a new heaven made new. And we're gonna live in, with Christ there together forever. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 11 says, um, since all these things are to be thus dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God speaks from this throne in Revelation 21. And he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither there shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, a couple more words of encouragement. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. That's a beautiful word, together. Together means with other people, with other believers, with other Christians. There's going to be relationships in glory. There's going to be friendships in heaven. Not marriage, right? Jesus, there's a parable about that, or not a parable, but there's teaching about that in the gospel. We don't need to look at it, but not marriage. Why not marriage? Well, because in this life, marriage is the highest way to relate with somebody. In the age to come, it doesn't make the cut. Isn't that beautiful? It doesn't make the cut. It's too low. Like, we'll know everybody at a greater degree than we know our spouse today. All relationships in heaven 
will be greater than marriages on earth. That's good news because there's no sin in heaven. See, no matter how great the friendship, sin messes everything up. I know some of you believe, I know Karen Martin believes this. Her grandchildren are absolutely perfect. And it's wonderful to believe that. It is not true, though. Your kids and grandkids, if you knew what was going through their minds, you'd sleep with a gun under your pillow, all right? I mean, like, people are sinners. People are sinners. They are broken, deeply broken. And so the best version of all that now in sin, imagine the version in heaven. I remember my grandma, we're standing at the grave of my grandpa, and I just preached his funeral. And, you know, she's crying. She's, you know, am I going to gonna know Tom in heaven? Are we going to recognize each other? Like, Grandma, are you ever going to recognize him? I said, you, you will know Grandpa Tom better the first day of heaven than you knew after 60 years of marriage on earth. I believe that. There's a great verse in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Face to face. Okay, I had a bunch of stuff in here just trying to help reconcile some of the views of, of, of the end times. I don't know that I need to do that. Um, I didn't do it in the last service. I was, I was running. You saw how late I was. So, um, I'll I just say this, like, like some people are going to take Matthew 24 and they're going to say that that's something that happens after 1 Thessalonians 4. So 1 Thessalonians 4 happens. There's people that swoop down. They come with Christ. Um, the saints who have, who have died are, are resurrected. And, and, or I'm sorry, the, the, the believers who are living are, are resurrected and, or they're snatched up. Man, I'm getting this all wrong. All right, so Jesus comes with the, with the saints of glory. Um, those who are still alive are caught up, snatched up. They go back to heaven, and then there's a period of time, you know, and then, and then Matthew 24 happens at the end. And I just want you to know, all, all that is fine. I, I, I really don't, I just, I, I don't want it to be about that today. I really want you to see these glorious truths that should comfort your hearts, okay? All right, next. I want you to see that all the truths we just talked about are solidly based in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep for, and then he goes into the rest. But do you notice how that starts? Since we believe Jesus died and was resurrected. Okay, in other words, our hope is not wishful thinking. Whenever I talk to folks that aren't followers of Jesus, and they tell me, I, I ask them, you know, what, what do you think is going to happen after you die? Everybody has an opinion, okay? But, but it amazes me that many times people's opinion is based on absolutely nothing more than what they think ought to happen. In other words, many times a person's theology is just based on something like this. Well, you know, when I look in the mirror, I think I'm a pretty good guy, you know? I, I can tell you all these things I've done that are good. I can tell you what a good husband I am. I can tell you what a good, good worker I am. I can tell you all the good deeds I've done. And so I just kind of think if there is a God, then he's going to look down and he's going to see me the same way. And so if there is a God, there's surely a good place and that's where I'll be. That's where I'll be. 
Okay, I, I just want, I want you to see that is based on absolutely nothing, okay? That is based on how you feel in the moment, okay? I, I honestly think if there's intellectual honesty with, with the lost person, they're going to they're gonna have to agree that there is, no, there is no assurance of anything beyond death. They know of nothing beyond the grave, all right? But what Paul is saying here is everything we just saw is rooted and grounded in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death on the cross makes it possible for us to be righteous. It makes it possible for our sins to be forgiven. It makes it possible for God to be revealed to us in Jesus. His resurrection proves our resurrection. Our resurrection is tied to the historical fact of his resurrection. Okay, so all that Paul is telling you here is deeply rooted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's just what Casey's baptism was, was all about. It was all about one man saying, I have come to know the resurrected Jesus Christ. I have met, I understand who he is. I believe, I put my faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. Death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus died for me. He was buried. He rose again. And I am identifying with Christ. I am joined to that death, to that burial, and to that resurrection. So that my hope is grounded in what Jesus did. Now, how should we respond to this? Number one, we should grieve with hope. We should grieve with hope. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Okay? You should have hope because of what we just talked about. We're supposed to comfort one another. We're supposed to speak these truths to one another, to the hurting, to the dying, to the mourning, to the broken. And these, these words are to bring hope. You see, there's a hopeless grief and there's a hope-filled grief. Again, what's the hope of an unbeliever? It's, it's that maybe something exists. Maybe I'm good enough. Maybe I'll, I'll go there. Maybe there's life. Paul says, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have a solid hope. Hope changes you. Man, I, I want you to see that. Hope is a powerful factor. Whenever you look ahead in your life, whenever you look ahead in your future, man, that, and, and you see good things, you are assured of glorious things, that should change the way you grieve. By the way, I, I do believe Christians should grieve. You know, you'll notice here Paul says, he didn't say don't grieve. He said that we don't grieve like other people do. They have no hope. I, I think you ought to grieve. I think, you, I think we ought to grieve much. Jesus stepped to, up to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, and, and it says he, he grieved violently. Man, I, I think we ought to be angry about death. We ought to be angry about sin. We ought to be angry about loss. There's nothing wrong with grieving, yet our grief should be mingled with this indomitable hope, this incredible Reality that as we look ahead, no matter how painful today is, as we look ahead, there's glory, unimaginable glory to come. And I, I think about people who have lost children. And, and I, I think about this, this reality that if you don't have the hope of Christ, it's, it's just, they're just gone. How, how can you ever be okay there? But, but if you have the hope of Jesus Christ, this reality that someday soon, and, and this, this beautiful 
hope that it could be today. Isn't that awesome? That it could be today, you know, where you'll stand in resurrected bodies and hold a resurrected hand. Guys, that's beautiful. That's glorious. Man. See, hope, hope should shape you. So number one, we should grieve with hope. Number two, we should eagerly await him. So I'm going to take you back to 1 Thessalonians 1. We kind of skipped over this first when we were traveling through it. But verse 10 in chapter 1 says, And we are to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There's this beautiful verse in Titus. Let me find it. Titus 2.13, where he talks about awaiting the blessed hope. He says in, in verse 13, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, your life should be different because of this expectation, this waiting for the coming of Jesus. You know, I I would just say this. If you don't have your foot on the gas for the mission of God in your life, if you're sleeping through months and years of your life because you believe that you're in a certain season that is either too hard or too whatever for you to be doing the things of God, you are not seeing the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Like Paul is saying, you, you, you ought to be awaiting it. This, this is our blessed hope. You know, Paul's approach in, in Philippians 1, and 23, as he thinks about his own death, he says, you know, two things here. Either God, you let me live and you tarry another day. And he says, and it means fruitful labor. That's the word he uses, fruitful labor. Or I die or you come back and it means I'll be with you and that's better. I mean, those should be our, our realities. Either I die and be with Christ or I am left here and it's fruitful labor. We should love his coming. I'm afraid that if we're not shifting our eyes to things above, we get so attached with this life that we don't want to leave it. And there's this jarring picture in the Old Testament uh, of a a city coming under the wrath of God. It's the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And and angels come in. It's really an interesting picture when you think about the second coming, how how it talks about angels coming in and and, and being caught up. And so angels come into this, this city that's about to be destroyed by the wrath of God. They can't hardly get Lot and his wife out. They don't want to leave. They're they're so attached to this life, they've almost got to drag them. It says they take them by the hand and pull them out after they're having a hard time convincing them. And then as they're going out, the command is given, do not look back. Lot's wife, she she can't help it. I, I don't wonder if sometimes that's our experience. We're, we're so focused on this life, we don't want to leave it. Finally, this hope of the second coming, this hope of death in Christ should cause us to purify ourselves. If you go back a chapter, 1 Thessalonians 3.13, he said, so that, he's telling us to love one another more and more, to be holy more and more, and he says, so that we may, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If I could go back to a verse that I already read, 1 John 2, 
when he talks about when we see him, we'll be transformed. He said in the next verse, everyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. Guys, I, I believe that if we really believe Christ is coming to do all of this, I want to I circle all the way back around. Can I circle back around? I, I think we'll do these things I said our church is about. Amen. I think we will pursue every human being, every tongue, tribe, and nation with vigorous gospel pursuit. I believe we will see every believer, no matter what tongue, tribe, or nation, as a person of faith. We'll see two groups of people, those connected to Christ and those not connected to Christ. I think we'll love one another more and more. The press will be on. I, I think we'll visit and care for the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the poor, the helpless, and the oppressed. I think we'll do those things because we won't want to be found having not done them when Christ returns. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you, Jesus, for this incredible hope. Uh, God, I thank you that um, all of this is coming for us. God, I thank you for a cry of command, for the, the voice of an archangel, for the sound of the trumpet of God, for believers being caught up, for saints being brought back, for the perfection of our souls and the resurrection of our bodies, that all things be made new in a new heavens and a new earth. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And Father, I pray, God, that we would live in light of this reality. God, don't let anything steal our hope or steal the, the momentum of our lives. Father, I pray that you would help us to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly before you. Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.